the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show on this February 22nd. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office slash music room for the sake of the cost. Appreciate it, Dan Rice. In addition to covering the headlines and some of the day's news, we're going to hear a classic interview with Gene Halthouse, uh, Managing Worry and Anxiety. That's the title of the book, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. I know most of us, you know, during this pandemic, what month, who knows what, are really uh, dealing with worry and anxiety. But for those who might have fallen through the cracks, we'll talk with Gene Holthouse, Managing Worry and Anxiety. We'll also hear from Justin Whitmell Early. His book is titled The Common Rule. He's an attorney. He used to work with um, nonprofits, and he's a father. He's trying to kind of figure out what are the things that will help him navigate well in this uh, challenging time. So we'll hear The Common Rule uh, from Justin Whitmell Early. That's coming up early in the 5 o'clock hour as well. So keep your eyes and ears open for those conversations. Well, Oregonians 70 and older are now eligible for COVID vaccines today. What's important to know? Well, this is the third wave of Oregon seniors, those who are 70 and older. They can get their first chance today to try to schedule their COVID-19 vaccination appointments. In the Portland area, 7,300 new appointments will open for booking at 9 a.m. Residents uh, ages 70 to 74 will be uh, competing for appointments with older seniors who started uh, their eligibility the first two waves over the past week or two. The fourth and final group of seniors will be uh, those 65 and older. They'll get their first opportunity to book appointments statewide starting March the 1st. Now, the process for securing these appointments can be, well, rather confusing. I can attest to that. Most counties have their own unique system for scheduling, which is usually outlined on their county websites. You may or may not know that, but the county website, a good resource. The process for securing these, it's a, a bit of a challenge. Pharmacies also, they've started offering appointments, but booking uh, booking that appointment can require calling multiple pharmacies or visiting the website of multiple stores that house those pharmacies. So how do I book an appointment? Start at 9 a.m. if you can. Oregonians in some counties, including those in the Portland area, can use 211 to schedule appointments. But for the internet savvy, booking online probably will be the quicker and the easier path. I would question that a little bit, but we'll take their word for it. For residents in the Portland area, which includes Multnomah, Washington, Clackamas, and Columbia counties, go to covidvaccine.oregon.gov. covidvaccine.oregon.gov. Click on the blue rectangular Let's Get Started box and start the chat tool to answer that question. Now, again, 211 is another alternative online, a bit more efficient, which makes me really question how efficient 211 is, having 
done this process. What's the difference between the convention center and the airport sites? These are two places where you can uh, have it done. Well, the convention center is Northeast Portland. It requires vaccine uh, recipients to walk in or use wheelchairs. It's typically uh, open seven days a week. Um, Most senior appointments will be at the airport's drive-through site in recognition of a sizable portion of seniors who might have trouble walking or standing for extended periods of time. On Monday, 4,900 appointments were available for scheduling at the uh, convention center for uh, time slots from Wednesday, February the 24th through Tuesday, March the 16th. Another 2,400 appointments are going to be open for scheduling at the airport for time slots Sunday, February 28th. Uh, The combined 7,300 appointments are open for seniors as well as some members of Phase 1A, which includes healthcare workers, people who receive assistance from caregivers at home, and so on. Um, Can I book at my local pharmacy? Yes, appointments are available at more than 120 of them. You can check that out. Safeway, Costco, both have uh, COVID sites. How soon can I get my shot? Well, operators at the Portland area mass vaccination sites say seniors who schedule appointments starting at 9 a.m. today could get vaccinated as early as Wednesday. Those who schedule shots at pharmacies might find earlier appointments, but again, it's not altogether clear. Well, there is a backlog from the winter storm but you just have to keep pressing on because this is how vaccinations for those who are currently eligible are going to get their shots. Well, Saturday morning marked day number eight without power for some residents, among them my brother, no water to drink to wash, using water from the greenhouse rain barrels to flush toilets, generator power to the fridge, surge protectors everywhere else because this is far from the first time. That's the description of one uh, local resident in Milano, Elizabeth Baltimeo's house in Milano. This is not their first time at the at the rodeo, but this power outage was worse, longer, no restoration information on Portland General Election uh, Electric's website, no luck on the phone, more than a week in, no utility tracks to the, their road. This is in Clackamas County. The electricity finally came back on Saturday mid-morning, but uh, for residents, they weren't appeased. Uh, things happened. Four people and a dog in Clackamas died in three separate incidents with carbon monoxide. We talked about those. This was a challenging season for lots of people. And while on the one hand, we had uh, linemen and women who were working tirelessly to restore and are still working to restore power, although conditions for them have improved greatly in uh, making that effort. This was a major event. And for a lot of people who have just received uh, restoration of their power, this has been a very frustrating long and arduous uh, series of events. I appreciate the line uh, workers who made it possible to restore most and eventually all of the power, but there's a lot uh, a lot to review looking back over what happened to see who can avoid this sort of thing in the future. Meanwhile, there's, meanwhile, rather, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, that, of course, is Dr. Anthony Fauci, told CNN's State of the Union on Sunday that it is possible Americans may still be wearing face masks in 2022, even as the country could approach a certain degree of normality. And while Dr. Fauci noted that he can't predict when the U.S. would return to the way it operated during pre-pandemic life, he believes that by the end of the year, the United States could have a significant degree of normality beyond what the terrible burden that uh, all of this has been for us over the last year has been. 
As we get into the fall and the winter, by the end of the year, I agree with President Biden completely that we will be approaching a degree of normality. Dr. Fauci says it may or may not be precisely the way it was in November of 2019, but it'll be much, much better than we're doing right now. However, he stressed it is an estimate, and that's a lot, that a lot of things can happen to modify that. That's the reason why we've uh, got to be careful. There are so many other things that uh, would make a projection that I give today on this Sunday uh, wind up not being the case six months from now. So the prospect of wearing masks into 2022 was actually uttered by Dr. Fauci. Meanwhile, in a flashback, Dr. Uh, Fauci warned uh, back in 2014 with the Ebola breakout about unintended consequences of draconian quarantines during that outbreak. Go with the science, he said at the time. Well, he warned, uh, re- or I should say interviews resurfaced, show that Dr. Fauci who'd been the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease since 1984, was opposed to what he referred to as draconian quarantines that could have unintended consequences. He warned in late October of uh, that year that enforcing mandatory quarantines would discourage medical professionals from volunteering aid in stricken areas. Governors from both major parties had imposed mandatory 21-day quarantines on people returning from affected areas in an effort to prevent the virus from spreading into the United States. Rather interesting to see as one looks forward and looks back to what's being recommended and how things are referred to in their time. Meanwhile, the uh, eyes of Texas turned to an emergency water crisis Thursday evening after electrical power had been restored to nearly two million homes, though hundreds of people Uh, thousands uh, remained at the time in the dark. About 13 million Texans, or nearly half the state's approximately 29 million residents, were under an advisory to boil drinking water, according to reports. Houston and San Antonio were among cities planning to distribute drinkable water. This is uh, last week. And the water crisis prompted Texas Governor Abbott to ask President Biden to declare a major disaster in the state. We need to make sure we're We use every tool possible to get water restored to fellow Texans. Well, the president approved an emergency declaration for Texas, along with Oklahoma and Louisiana, that will move resources, supplies and equipment to the state. FEMA would uh, be sending 729,000 liters of water and boil water advisories followed record low temperatures that damaged infrastructure and pipes again in Texas. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Jean Halthouse, author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges, for those who you know are facing life's challenges. Well, Governor Cuomo's nursing home scandal is uh, apparently a lower priority for the media than the Ted Cruz Mexico trip, which was ill-advised. The media's priorities were on clear display on Thursday. ABC's News, World News were not World News Night devoted roughly four times more coverage of the Cancun controversy surrounding uh, the senator from Texas than to the growing legal problems facing. Uh, facing uh, New York Governor Mario Cuomo, with Texans still struggling following deadly winter storms that have devastated the state's power grid. Crews landed in hot water late Wednesday after photos emerged on a social media uh, site showing him and his family flying to Mexico for a vacation. A humbled Cruz 
flew back to Houston on Thursday with a backlash. Meanwhile, Cuomo's administration is reportedly facing investigation by the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn, New York, after critics accused officials of covering up the true number of COVID-19 nursing home deaths in the state. Early in the pandemic, the governor ordered assisted living facilities to accept COVID-positive patients, patients they knew to be COVID-positive in order to keep hospital beds free. Well, judging by Thursday's broadcast, it appeared ABC News believed Cruz's vacation episode was far more consequential than Cuomo's nursing home scandal. World News Tonight dedicated nearly four minutes to the GOP senator's um, round-trip snafu and just 55 seconds to the Democrats' growing legal controversy. Now, to put it into context, that controversy has been going on for quite some time, which may explain uh, the timing. Senator Cruz admits to having second thoughts almost immediately, almost immediately after boarding the flight to Cancun. And he's being pounded by Democrats over the excursion. New York Assembly Republicans are pushing for a Cuomo impeachment commission to investigate the nursing home scandal. And Democrats who accuse Cuomo of threatening to destroy them are the latest to say the governor bullied them. Will NASA's Perseverance rover send back uh, photos after landing on Mars? NASA has unveiled the first photos from its fifth Mars rover, Persuasive, or let's see, Perseverance, let's get the name right, after a successful landing on the uh, red planet's uh, crater at approximately 3.55 p.m. on Thursday. That's Jezero. Well, this landing is one of those pivotal moments for NASA, the United States, the space exploration globally, when we know we are on the cusp of discovery and sharpening our pencils, so to speak, to rewrite the textbook. That's what acting NASA Administrator Steve uh, Jerzyk said in a statement. The Mars 2020 Perseverance mission embodies our nation's spirit of persevering, even in the most challenging of situations, inspiring and advancing science and exploration. Well, Perseverance, the most technologically advanced robot NASA has sent to date, traveled 293 million miles to reach Mars over the course of more than six months. That's after launching on a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket, from Cape Canaveral Space Station on the 20th, or rather on the 30th of July. It's going to remain on Mars for nearly two years, searching for signs of ancient life, exploring the planet's surface, and more. The mission will help prepare the agency for future human exploration on Mars in the 2030s. James and I will not be going, just for the record. In other developments, the building blocks of life exist on Mars. That's a former NASA administrator confirming what uh, he says they found. A Chinese spacecraft has entered Mars orbit, joining an Arab ship as well. We are not alone. Bob Dole says that he's been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. The South Carolina veteran has used the butt of his shotgun to kill a home intruder who attacked his wife. And an Alaska woman is visiting an outhouse, well, to do what you do at an outhouse, where a bear takes a bite out of, um, well, her backside, her hinter parts, the buttocks. Be careful, people. Bill Aikman uh, has hired the first woman for his investment team and reports record 2020 returns. Ford is recalling over 150,000 vehicles for safety issues related to airbags and rear suspension. Boeing is cleaning out its um, commercial airlines headquarters for remote work as that continues. And a third stimulus check. Experts say some Americans should file their taxes as soon as possible for a bigger payment. Well, President Biden has abandoned the U.N. sanctions on Iran and seeks to rejoin the uh, disastrous nuclear agreement from the Obama years. Well, this follows the Iran-backed attack on U.S. forces in Iraq. Tom Cotton points out that Iranian-backed forces just attacked American troops in Iraq. Instead of retaliating, what does President Biden do? 
prepares to lift sanctions on the regime and begs to rather begs to reopen diplomatic talks. The Iranian regime will continue to exploit our weakness. Hugh Hewitt points out, bet on it. Team Biden will recognize nine dash line and Tehran um, right to nuclear weapons in exchange for carbon reductions in 2080. Carry to Rice to Sherman triple play. Democrats are plotting to bring back big bo- big pork, rather. According to reports, Ms. Delario and Senate Appropriations Chairman Patrick Leahy will soon announce that airmarks are welcomed in uh, annual spending bills. Why would Democrats risk such a move? Well, Political explains that the House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer has reassured his party that it won't suffer since the effort will be bipartisan. Democrats are banking on uh, spin-thirsty Republicans to join and provide cover. Facebook will soon censor your politically incorrect climate change opinions, starting with users in the UK soon to expand. And Kroger is closing stores rather than pay more to workers. Remember when people were happy to have a job during this pandemic? Well, the city of Seattle passed a $4 an hour hazard pay mandate for grocery workers. Since Kroger is in the business of making profit, they would do better while shutting down stores. Bernie Sanders, who appears to have no understanding of how economics works, called this the height of corporate greed. Hmm. Senator Chuck Schumer is suddenly down on Puerto Rico becoming a state. He now says he will not support the effort. And former President Trump is looking to start a conservative-friendly social media pat- platform, rather, and he's looking for investors. A high school football coach has been fired for questioning Black Lives Matter cur- curricula, and he's suing. Unity? Well, Democrats introduced a No Glory for Hate Act to deprive President Trump of post-death memorials. Huh. Democrats debut a sweeping immigration reform bill featuring an eight-year path to citizenship. You might uh, color me and others skeptical that it uh, represents an earned roadmap as it's being uh, advertised. Government and politics? Well, incredibly, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is still eligible to receive U.S. taxpayer funding through 2024, according to the National Institutes of Health. They have confirmed. Well, the U.S. will erroneously pay $200 million in overdue and current dues to the World Health Organization. And the White House says President Biden supports a study of slavery reparations. The FDA is confirming, thankfully, no evidence that COVID spreads through food or food packaging. And the White House has announced $4 billion in funding for a global vaccine effort. The Centers for Disease Control classroom guidance would wrongly keep 90% of schools at least partially closed. And the NASA Mars rover survived seven minutes of terror to successfully land on the red planet with the images referred to earlier. President, Bar- uh, President Biden rather, is marginalizing ICE. There are new rules to limit who agents target for arrest. And Capitol Police have suspended three officers with pay investigating 29 others over the January 6th riot. President Biden is uh, ready to restore the disastrous Iran nuclear deal. You can read more at The Examiner. And regression in 2021, the U.S. will import more than uh, more oil rather than it exports under our current president. Regression. 2021. Weekly jobless claims have risen to 861,000 as layoffs stay high, and red states trounce blue states economically. The total amount of global debt reached thus far $281 trillion by the end of 2020, according to Newsweek. 
Well, around the nation, blast of severe winter weather is being blamed for at least 36 deaths. An interesting social media censorship legislation targets terms of service proposed in Kansas. And Chicago plans to review 41 statutes for potential demolition. I should say statues, let's clarify, including ones of Washington, Lincoln and Grant. I'm not sure on what grounds any statue can stand in the U.S., these days, or at least in Chicago. South Carolina's governor has signed the heartbeat abortion ban into law as the legal challenge looms. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk with Gene Holthouse, author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Christians deal with anxiety and worry just as much as anyone else, sadly, but many feel guilty about it because Scripture tells us quite clearly not to be anxious for anything. Well, what should Christians do when they do struggle with anxiety? Are they bad Christians for worrying? And how can they help others who are experiencing extreme anxiety? Well, in her new book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, my next guest uh, uh, writes about um, uh, how we can manage these things and provides practical tools to help you deal with life's challenges. Jean Halthouse is a licensed therapist of 24 years and director of Two Pines Rest Clinics. She integrates both the psychological and spiritual aspects of anxiety through research-driven and faith-informed methods. In the book, she covers the difference between healthy and unhealthy anxiety and worry, factors that may indicate someone has an anxiety disorder, how to help a loved one with an anxiety disorder, and some key scales to help manage anxiety, and how one uh, one's views of God impacts the level of anxiety one experiences. She provides simple, practical strategies to tackle anxiety and worry, showing how to use the five senses to live in the present moment and tactics to suspend judgment through guided questions. Well, Jean Holthouse has some more, as I mentioned, more than 25 years experience providing therapy. She currently works as a clinician and manages two clinics for Pine Rest Christian Mental Health Services. Her professional experience includes working with individuals, couples, families, and much more. She's a member of the National Association of Social Workers and the American Association of Christian Counselors. She lives in Pella, Iowa, and we are delighted to have her with us today to talk about her latest book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be able to be a part of this. This is such a poignant subject um, for us today. Perhaps we should begin by defining worry and anxiety. Uh, Are we talking about a clinical um, anxiety or are we talking about someone who just is agitated? Can you help us understand how you're using these terms? Sure. Um, And that's actually part of what makes this so hard is that we use those words interchangeably. Yes. And it makes it hard to tell if we're, you know, having an anxious moment or someone that has an anxiety disorder. So I think about it in terms of we all are created by God to have a healthy, anxious response when there's something external to us that is a threat. So if a car veers into my lane of traffic, I'm going to have anxiety. And that anxiety is going to push my body into fight, flight, or freeze, which it needs to in order for me to react so that I steer away from that car rapidly or whatever the threat is. But it's healthy anxiety because it helps me deal with an external threat. And as soon as that threat passes, the anxiety begins to dissipate too. So that would be what we would call healthy anxiety. 
And that's not what Paul was talking about mm-hmm. in Scripture when he says, be anxious for nothing. But then there's this next step over, which we would call worrying more, and that's what Paul's talking about when he talks about anxiety. And it's where we're actually responding to something that's not actually present in the current moment. We're either thinking about things in the future that haven't happened yet, and we're doing all of the what-ifs about those things, or we're thinking about things in the past and doing the coulda, shoulda, oughta. And in those situations, we have no power to change those things, and there are places where we have to trust our past to God because he's taking care of that, and we need to trust our future to God because he says he'll provide for it. And then one step beyond that is what happens when people get a clinical diagnosis of an anxiety disorder, which is actually a chemical imbalance within the body, which is causing it to live in fight, flight, and freeze either all the time or intermittently when without us kind of knowing when it's going to happen. Um, so there's kind of that continuum there. Aside from this being displeasing to God, if we have crossed the line into what's healthy, um, what what are the consequences to us as individuals when we um, experience anxiety that's unchecked, that's that's in the unhealthy range? Sure. Um, actually, if you look at what happens um, for worry and what happens in an anxiety disorder is your body is kind of stuck in that fight, flight, freeze space, space, which means it's pumping out all sorts of adrenaline and other chemicals into your body all the time, which causes it to be under chronic stress. And it affects virtually every system in your body and causes it to begin to degrade and break down. So there's just this litany of physical problems that comes from living anxious or worried all of the time or even a lot of the time. So it affects our physical body. It makes it really hard and steals our joy and our peace in the present moment, too. So it affects us psychologically as well. And it's really hard to have a relationship with God when we're kind of trying to play God and figure out all the answers without having to trust him. So it affects every aspect of our life when we're living in those places. Hmm. So when we acknowledge that we suffer from uh, inordinate worry or anxiety, what's the first place we need to start? I suppose acknowledging the fact that, that this is a struggle, but where do we go from there? Sure. It's, and oftentimes it's hard to tell that difference between am I living in that kind of worry zone where it's a bad habit or do I have actually a physical condition? And so I always tell people start with going and getting a physical um, because we want to rule out physical things that could be wrong with your body that might be causing it to do that. Um, and make sure that you're healthy in those ways first, and then start looking at, okay, I'm going to need some help to retrain my body and retrain my mind to do things differently, and I may be able to do that on my own. I may need the help of an accountability group of some sort. I might need a therapist to help me kind of sort through why am I doing what I'm doing, and are there other ways for me to live and build new habits? So it's kind of a process, and, and recognizing we have to learn to do it differently. We don't just wake up and kind of vow we're going to do it differently and have it work. Now, we might think of worry and anxiety as being a biological response alone, but you have a chapter titled, How We Think and What We Think Affect Anxiety. So a lot of what, what goes on in our mind has an impact that does have physical consequence, uh, but has significant uh, significance in terms of how we uh, express this uh, very unhealthy thing when it's reached that level. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how we think and what we think of uh, how that affects anxiety? Sure. Um, so if we if we were to use an example of like, let's say that I am going to go for a job interview, that should produce a little bit of anxiety for any of us, right? 
But if in my head I am worrying about all the things that I might say that are wrong and all of the ways I might make a fool of myself or um, all of the reasons this person might not like me, then I'm going to be running things in my head that are going to notch my anxiety up above that normal level that any of us would have into a place where it's going to be hard to think and it's going to be hard to answer questions that an interviewer might have for me. And I'm also actually in a place where I'm not thinking well of myself, which makes it hard to put my best foot forward in that place. Um, And so uh, as an alternative, if I go to that interview and I think to myself, I'm going to put give my best shot, and if they like me and God wants me to have this job, then um, we'll go forward. And if not, I'll keep looking. That's going to let me be a little calmer about that job, and it's going to let me answer questions differently than if I'm worrying about doing the right answer and keeping everybody happy is going to do. So how I think about it is going to affect the level of anxiety I have, and it's also going to affect what I do in the end. You offer three skills. You you write about um, how these skills have been proven to effectively help manage anxiety. What are these skills, and can they be useful to anyone who is struggling in this area? They can be useful to anybody. That's part of the reason I chose those three to write about is because whether or not you have normal levels of anxiety, you're kind of in that worry zone, or you have actually a clinical disorder, these skills will be helpful. Um, And they're the skills of learning to live in the present moment, um, learning to live without judging yourself and others, and then learning to live believing that you and God are competent to handle what comes at you. Um, And I call all three of those skills because that's exactly what they are. We don't come into the world knowing how to do any of those things. We have to learn them all, and we have to practice them over and over and get better at them over time. And so if we think about it that way, that we're having to learn to do those things, it's more helpful than just being mad at ourselves that we can't do Mm -hmm. them. That's good. You use the story in Exodus about the uh, Israelites to help give us a picture of um, of how to effectively manage um, our, uh, uh, our or to develop these skills and use those skills uh, in trying to um, to manage our anxiety. Can you tell us a bit about that story, how it relates to us in the 21st century and can help us manage and relieve our anxiety? Sure. It's actually one of the stories God has used over and over again in my life, because when the Israelites leave um, Egypt, they don't have, they run out of food and they legitimately are hungry. And basically God says, I'm going to give you what you need for the moment that you're in. You can only have enough manna for today. And if you try to get enough for tomorrow today, it's not going to work. It's going to rot. And it does. So every day they have to trust him that he's going to give them what they need for that day. And they can't use what he gave them for that day for the next day. It doesn't work. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble is that we take what God's given us for today and we try to figure out how we could use that to solve problems that might happen tomorrow or 20 years from now. And then we always feel like we don't have what we're going to need then because the manna that God gives us for today is for today and it's for today's problems. It's not enough for what will happen tomorrow or the next day, but he will give us that tomorrow. Um, and kind of they had to learn that over and over and over in the desert, walking with him for um, weeks and months and years, so that when they come back up to the Jordan River to cross over, they can trust that when they step into that river, he's going to give them what they need. And when they cross over into the promised land and they're going to have to drive out the giants that they know are there, he'll give them what they need. So he had to teach them that for them for it would took 40 years for them to learn it enough to be able to trust 
that much. And that's kind of comforting to me because I've lived longer than 40 years and I still don't have it all down pat, but I'm yeah. a little better than I was. Well, that is somewhat comforting to know that it's going to take a little time. God's not surprised by that and that he's going to continue to uh, to teach us. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon about um, uh, the book, uh, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. Uh, Jean Holthouse is our guest. The book is published by Ravel. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Jean Holthouse. She is the author of Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. One of the uh, things that you write about in the book is living in the moment, and you suggest an activity that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment rather than uh, projecting uh, into the future and worrying about what may or may not happen or looking back and fretting over what has already happened. How can we, what are some of the activities or at least one um, that we can adopt to help us learn to be in the moment? One of the things you can do is to use your senses because if you can't see it, hear it, feel it, touch it or taste it in the present moment, uh, those are the only things that are in the present moment are the things that you can use your senses to observe. And a lot of what we're worrying about has no no basis in the present moment. And so when we find our brain kind of off on one of those what ifs, we just come back to, wait a minute, what can I see right now? What can I hear right now? What can I physically feel right now? It helps us to come back to the moment and know that you're going to need to do that over and over again. We're, our minds are not very well trained. So, you know, you bring yourself back to the moment and you become aware, okay, I'm sitting in my chair. And then you find yourself off thinking about something in the future again. And you just got to be kind to yourself and just keep bringing yourself back. And as you do that over and over and you use your senses to kind of bring you back to the moment, gradually over time, that muscle of staying in the present moment strengthens. But it'll take time, and you can use your senses to help you be aware of when you're in the moment and when you're not. Oh, that's so good. How does judgment feed into worry and anxiety? Uh, And can you give us an example? Sure. Um, we all would, we all probably know the scripture that says, don't judge lest ye be judged. And we tend to think about that as, you know, the big things where I'm condemning something or someone like that or something like that. But judgment is any time we take one of our opinions and we turn it into a fact and we act as though it's a fact. And those things increase our distress. And they increase our distress because we're either putting ourselves above someone else or we're putting someone else above us. And because we walk through our days kind of constantly grading ourselves against other people or grading other people, um, we assume that other people are doing that with us as well. And it makes us more anxious as we go through our days. And God says basically he's the one that knows to judge. And he's the one that knows ultimate truth. And we're supposed to come to him for those answers. We're not supposed to be trying to figure it out ourselves. And when we can let go of that and just accept the moment we're in and figure out what to do that brings life in that moment, that's when we can um, let go of the judgment and we can live more fully in that moment. But it's really hard to let go of judgment, and we like to judge a lot because I always kind of want to know, like, where do I rank with everybody else rather than knowing, wait a minute, I come before God as just me, and he's not judging me anymore because Jesus has already died for everything he would judge me for. So I come to him already accepted. You write about um, unconditionally accepting reality, which, again, mm-hmm. is uh, something that we can do that keeps us in the present. What do you mean by that, unconditionally accepting reality? 
Well, it kind of means letting go of the shoulds and the oughts and the coulds and looking at, okay, this is what's here. Whether or not I like it, it is what it is. So now how am I going to be effective rather than trying to decide it shouldn't be that way? So if um, I have just lost a job, I can't really do anything about getting another job until I can accept, okay, I have lost this job. As long as I'm in that place of judging, well, I shouldn't have lost this job, I should have done this, I should have done that, well, my boss should have, should have, should have. As long as we're doing that, we're not really accepting the reality. When I can say, okay, I am currently jobless. This is the reality. What do I want to do with that? Then I'm in that place of accepting it and I'm ready to move forward and I'm less anxious. You um, have a chapter titled, Our View of God Affects Anxiety. Um, again, we often feel guilty if we are experiencing um, angst, uh, being anxious or worrying. But how does our view of God feed our understanding of our current situation that may produce anxiety or we may find rest in because of how we view him? Mm-hmm. In the book, I use myself as an example um, because I grew up in a Christian home um, and was raised in the church. But yet my view of God, um, I discovered as an adult, was a little off because I always viewed him as someone who loved me, but it was kind of this love like, well, I have to love her, not that he actually liked me. And it was much more that he loved me because he had to, but he was up there kind of keeping track of all my mistakes. And somehow I could make enough mistakes that, you know, he was just going to kind of give up on me. Um, and that view of God then makes one really, really anxious and really, really concerned about making sure you do all the do's that he writes in the Bible and don't do any of the don'ts because you don't want to make him mad, right? Versus if, I, and as I learned over time, that that's not how God thinks about us. God loves us exactly the way we are, and he likes us exactly the way they are. we are. There's a verse in Colossians that when it's written in um, the Living Bible that was of the original Living Bible, not the New Living Bible. It says that we stand before him right now with nothing that he could even chide us for. So he's not up there keeping a list of everything we do that's wrong. He's up there saying, we can do this. We can do it. Let's keep trying again. We'll get there. Um, and we have, when we have that sort of a view of God, then we can be much more relaxed and we can come to him rather than being afraid of him. One of the things that can produce anxiety is being in a position where we have to make a decision. It can be an insignificant, small decision or a major decision, but that's often anxiety producing for a lot of people. Um, explain how doing what brings life helps us let go of that anxiety when we're in a position where we are, are forced essentially to make a decision. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of those decisions every yes. day as adults where we have to decide. And oftentimes we're trying to figure out what is the exact right decision or what's the wrong decision. And in many ways, that's very much like where God said in the Garden of Eden, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of what's right and wrong. Instead, eat from the tree of life. He gave us permission to eat from the tree of life. Um, And when we look at a situation and we look at, okay, what is going to bring forth life here? It's going to bring forth life for me and others, both in the short term and in the long term. Then I can move in that direction. And I can trust that God's going to be with me in that. Instead of when I'm sitting and trying to contemplate exactly what's the right thing or what's the wrong thing, that's very hard to determine because we're not wired up for that. Um, And and we have to trust that God's bigger than we are and he knows the decisions that we're going to make and he's willing to work with us on those decisions um, and get us where we need to be. There's not some decision we're going to make that he can't figure out how to help us through. 
Um, so it doesn't mean we can go recklessly off doing whatever we want because we are told that we're supposed to do those things which bring life, not the things that would bring death or that violate his word. Um, and the things that violate his word really don't bring life ever if you look at long term. They might bring life in the moment, but they don't do that long term. So if we just consistently are looking at, okay, I'm going to trust that God's big enough that he's going to get me through this if I don't do it just right, but I'm going to work consistently to seek him and to seek what will bring life, um, then we don't have to be afraid of the decision because we know that he's with it. In, he's with us in it. We're talking about the book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges, published by Ravel. Throughout the book, you provide very practical activities for readers to undertake in order to tackle their uh, anxiety. Now, why are these activities important to complete, and how does that help us long-term in dealing with uh, anxiety or the, the temptation uh, toward uh, responding with anxiety in the future? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really important to realize that we didn't, we weren't born worrying. Um, I've never seen a baby that worries. And we learned how to worry over time, and we learned it as a coping strategy because little kids believe that they're kind of the center of the world. Therefore, if they could predict all of the things that might go wrong, they can stop them from happening. Um, and the example I use with my clients is that's a little bit like slamming your finger in the door just in case you hit it with a hammer later. But because we've learned to do that, we've learned to practice that worry skill, we're going to have to learn different skills to replace it. And it doesn't do much good to try it one day and, well, I didn't get it right, so I guess I can't. We more have to think about it as training ourselves, training our minds to do things differently, and it's going to take time, and you have to build on it slowly over time. So my attempt in the book was to break things down into small steps that you could try one step and then build onto it over time. And maybe you try one thing for a period of time and then you come back to the book and you look at adding the next piece in um, because you're going to need to train yourself to do this um, new set of skills to replace the old worry set that you already had. And again, the subtitle of the book is Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges. The book is titled Managing Worry and Anxiety. Jean Holthouse, thank you so much for talking with us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for allowing me to. It's been great to be on your show. Again, the book, Managing Worry and Anxiety, Practical Tools to Help You Deal with Life's Challenges, published by Ravel. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later in the hour, we're going to hear a classic interview with Justin Whitmell early. The book is The Common Rule. He's a dad. He's formerly worked with nonprofits, and he's an attorney. Navigating life in a way that's Christ-honoring was a challenge for him. His book talks about the common rule that helped him to put order into his life and uh, walk forward in a way that uh, is pleasing to God. That's coming up in the second half of today's second hour. Well, again, looking at the day's uh, news, a Massachusetts high school football coach has been fired for privately questioning BLM curricula. As I mentioned in the first hour, he sued or is suing. Cartoon Network is pushing anti-racism. They're lecturing kids to see color in a new PSA. Lecturing kids to see color. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. was mostly noted for his famous words, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. One thing that we need to watch for is the uh, 
turning on its head of the principles that was embraced by the country by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He would not recognize this movement uh, that has um, been jettisoned to fame. Former Senator and World War II veteran Bob Dole has announced he has stage four cancer. And legal experts are warning that New York Governor Cuomo's nursing home scandal may rise to federal-level criminal offense. We'll continue to uh, to watch that. Legal experts are warning that the governor um, and his alleged un- uh, undercounting of these nursing home deaths with the COVID-19 pandemic may rise to a level of criminal offense to which he would be held accountable. It's not likely, by the way, but... Uh, for you and I, we certainly would be. Cuomo has found himself at the center of a federal investigation into whether his administration sought to hide the true toll of the pandemic. The New York Post reported earlier this month that Melissa DeRosa, Cuomo's top aide, told lawmakers the administration had withheld the numbers for fear of them being used against us. So to preserve one's own political standing, one's own reputation and future, they misled not only the public, but those to whom they were otherwise accountable. In other developments, Dr. Fauci is downplaying concerns over COVID-19 variants, but claims variant vaccines are in development. Also, Dr. Fauci said the U.S. will have 600 million coronavirus vaccine doses by July of this year. He warned of unintended consequences of draconian quarantines during the 2014 Ebola outbreak that might be relevant today. And to uh, Americans, Mr. Fauci now says, when your turn to get the vaccine comes, get it. Well, New York is backtracking on de Blasio's plan to close the Trump-owned ice rinks. And Saturday Night Live's Michael Che, NBC, are being accused of anti-Semitic trope in the weekend update segment, retract and apologize. Of course, they won't be held accountable. It's comedy. And, well, it was the right kind of comedy by those who make such decisions. President Biden is claiming that he was once arrested for temporarily, uh, I should say, for trespassing at the Capitol at age 21. Whether or not it actually happened remains a question. And why he would bring it up, is this supposed to put him well in with those who were also arrested for being for trespassing? It's not altogether clear. Anyway, the FAA is demanding an emergency inspection of select Boeing 777s after a mid-air explosion ripped engines which ripped rather an engine into pieces and Disney plus gives the Muppet show, you know, the Muppets an offensive content content disclaimer before select episodes. Wow. No one's safe. Not even inanimate objects. Kroger has become the latest victim of a third party software data breach as well. Well, Democrats are prepping for a party line vote on the $1.9 trillion pandemic bill. House Democrats aren't expecting to get a single GOP vote for that uh, aid package, which they're taking up to the procedural maneuver known as reconciliation in order to win Senate passage without the threat of a filibuster. The House Budget Committee will meet uh, this afternoon to tee up the legislation for floor passage on Friday or Saturday. Republicans are refusing to vote for this thing. Why? Well, from the Wall Street Journal, the Biden White House is pointing uh, to polls showing that its $1.9 trillion spending bill is popular and the press um, corps is cheering. Yet we wonder how much public support there would be if Americans understood that most of the blowout is a list of longtime Democratic spending priorities flying under the false flag of COVID-19. In fact, we'll talk later this week about the percentage that actually is related in any way 
to the pandemic. South Carolina has passed the heartbeat bill while a judge immediately halted it. No surprise there. The story notes that U.S. District Judge Mary Geiger Lewis placed a two-week temporary restraining order on the law ahead of a March 9th hearing that will determine a preliminary injunction. The bill was signed into law by Governor Harry McMaster on Thursday. Dr. Albert Moeller points out, thank you, Governor McMaster and South Carolina lawmakers. The opponents to this bill show their hostility to the unborn in their opposition. This is a monumental clash over human dignity. Choose life. Again, South Carolina passed the heartbeat bill, the judge immediately halting it. Meanwhile, Coca-Cola tells employees, try to be less white, according to a whistleblower who exposed the training video. Now, my understanding is that we as human beings were made in the image of God. He chose some of us to be brown, tan, a bit uh, beige. There are some who have more of a a golden hue. There are some who are white. And we are supposed to um, embrace the idea that however you were chosen by God to be born, you should reject and resist if you fall in certain categories. Try to be less white. Now, we know perhaps what Coca-Cola is saying. Don't uh, do certain things that are offensive to people who aren't white. But just that on the face of it, uh, a, a training video imposed on employees saying to them, try to be less white. I find that highly offensive as someone who is not white. This is not consistent with what God would have us do um, in relations to one another. Now, I, I get it. I know what it's about. I'm not naive about this, and I'm not denying that there are problems, but this is unacceptable. This is not the answer to that problem. Anyway, uh, Barry Weiss says, every day I get calls from people working in corporate America, uh, forced to go to trainings in which they learn that they carry collective race-based guilt or benefit from collective race-based guilt. I get calls from young people just uh, launch, uh, just launching their careers, tell me that they feel they have no choice but to profess fealty to this ideology in order to keep their jobs. Almost no one who calls me is willing to go public, and I understand why. To go public uh, with what's happening is to risk their jobs, their reputations, and their futures. This is unacceptable. Well, Amazon has removed Ryan Anderson's book, When Harry Became Sally, but for now, they're okay with the other books. Rachel Bovard says that if you still think this is merely about a private company making decisions and not about one of the world's biggest corporations and largest book retailers deciding what constitutes appropriate thought and information, I'm not sure I can keep uh, I can help you anymore. Philip Klein points out just a reminder that not only does Amazon sell Mein Kampf, but it gets 4.5 stars. The book does. Christina Summers says that one can buy uh, Valerie Solanas Scum, which is Society for Cutting Up Men Manifesto, Ted Kaczynski's Unabomber Manifesto, Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf on Amazon and Amazon Books, but not Ryan T. Anderson's new book critiquing the transgender movement. Please explain. I won't pause too long because you're not going to get one from Amazon. Wayfinding Academy College is offering free tuition for blacks and Native Americans uh, out of uh, Washington. They say that they're uh, doing this because these two groups have been disproportionately impacted by the state, white supremacist history, and because college debt is a major factor in racial wealth gap in the country. Kudos to Wayfinding Academy College. It's a private institution, and they certainly can uh, choose to highlight um, 
the need and provide tuition assistance. Conservative actress Carano says, my story is one of many. She told Ben Shapiro, I've been through so much and I've seen so much now clearly of the bullying that's been taking place and I saw it before. I'm not the only one that's ever been bullied by the company and I know that so deeply. I could share a story which would turn things around in in the media, but I can't because um, I would sell out my friends. Uh, Everyone is afraid of losing their job. More on that conversation on the Daily Wire and the Washington Examiner. This is the... uh, environment that we're in. We can't have open, honest conversations about what's happening. There's a tremendous amount of fear, and that fear is keeping people who have legitimate grievances from expressing those grievances and perhaps requiring, making it possible for those conversations to take place. We are in trouble, ladies and gentlemen. We need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Justin Whitmell early, his book, The Common Rule. So stay with us. Again, returning to headlines, businesses are begging New York to stop the bleeding before they die off. Well, as of this month, more than 47% of small businesses citywide remain closed. While revenue for those uh, that are open has dropped nearly 60%, that's according to TrackTheRecovery.org. It's a Harvard University-run database tracing the virus economic impact. In lower Manhattan, commercial office leasing dropped about 70% in 2020, while a staggering 12% of businesses, ranging from hotels to department stores to restaurants, closed for good. Again, data from the Downtown Alliance shows. Well, Disney warns that some Muppet episodes contain offensive content, duly noted. The program includes negative depictions and or mistreatments of people or cultures. These stereotypes were uh, wrong then and wrong now, they say. Rather than remove this content, we want to acknowledge its harmful impact, learn from it, and speak conversations, uh, rather spark conversations, to create a more inclusive future together. Wow, that's a lot for a kid to take in who's just, you know, wants to watch something while they're having their cookies and milk. The Supreme Court has declined to shield President Trump's tax returns from Manhattan's DAs. And Senator Joe Manchin has rightly announced that he's going to oppose provocateur Neera Tandine, uh, likely defeating her Office of Management and Budget nomination. It doesn't always have to be a yes or a no answer. Press Secretary Jen Psaki, she dodged another question about Governor Cuomo's nursing home uh, failures. Friendly Fire, AOC calls for full investigation into the nursing home scandal. I feel much better now that she's uh, jumped into the fray. The Biden administration is urging the passage of the Equality Act to conflate gender identity with sexual orientation. Democrats are planning a revival of congressional airmarks following the GOP's 10-year ban, and they're counting on uh, Republicans to give them cover to do it. A prominent Democrat fundraiser has been sentenced to 12 years in prison for foreign money campaign schemes, and Donald Trump will speak at CPAC in his first post-White House appearance. Meanwhile, YouTube is censoring a new interview with uh, former President Trump because it's just more than we can handle. It's kind of like the Muppets, you know, you need to have somebody sit you down and tell you this is offensive and therefore we don't want you to see it. Uh, Although we're not just going to put a disclaimer, we're just going to prevent you from having access altogether. Support for Biden's handling of the pandemic has fallen 5%. And making a bad situation worse, a study finds Andrew Cuomo's reckless nursing home directive may have led to 1,000 more COVID deaths than previously known. Lockdown upshot, flu activity is unusually low this year. 
unusually isn't strong enough a word, but uh, nonetheless, we don't have to worry about the flu. An epidemic of loneliness, however, is overspreading America, and lockdowns sure haven't helped. You can do anything about that with your neighbors, coworkers, and friends, family members. Check it out. Six more Oath Keepers associates have been charged in the Capitol riots conspiracy case. And Iran is refusing to change the terms of the nuclear deal. As the U.S. says, the ball is in their court. President Biden is approving a Texas disaster declaration. uh, And the Texas storm may cost insurers record first quarter losses. Some Texans now face huge variable rate electricity bills to the tune of thousands of dollars. The Biden administration announced reforms to PPP to assist small businesses. And a Bronx teacher has been fired for refusing to make a Black Panther salute. You know, the fictitious character in an entertainment film. He declined to do a Black Panther salute and therefore has been fired. Amazon drops Ryan T. Anderson's When Harry Became Sally book without explanation, as I mentioned earlier. And Planned Parenthood has committed 354 1,871 abortions in the past year and was given 618 million taxpayer dollars to do it. I think that bears repeating. 354,871 distinct individuals were aborted by Planned Parenthood alone, for which they received 618 million taxpayer dollars, yours and mine. Racism at Smith College. A whistleblower reveals the institution's psychological abuse of, well, Caucasian employees. A Colorado homeowner was making a sandwich when plane debris pierced his kitchen ceiling, stranger than fiction, and a gas leak led to a Tennessee family, or rather led them to discover a family of bears living under their home. Can you imagine having a family of bears living under your home and being unaware of it? Of course, the gas leak helped. And in a heartwarming story, now you can rickroll people in 4,000 thanks, in 4K rather, thanks to this hero who remastered uh, Rick Astley's classic, Never Gonna Give Up, uh, the song, the music video. Okay, I didn't deliver that very well, but I think you got the idea. Apollo 16 lunar rover footage upscale upscaled to a um, mesmerizing 4K, 60 FPS is rather breathtaking as well. Well, this day in history, 1909, the Great White Fleet, a naval task force sent on a round-the-world voyage by President Theodore Roosevelt, returns after more than a year at sea. 1935, it becomes illegal for airplanes to fly over the White House. On this day in history, 1959, the inaugural Daytona 500 race is held, although Johnny, I think is Beauchamp, is initially declared the winner. The victory would be awarded to Lee Petty. 1980, the Miracle on Ice takes place in Lake Placid, New York, as the United States Olympic hockey team upsets the Soviets 4-3. The U.S. team would go on to win the gold medal. 1997, scientists in Scotland announced they succeeded in uh, cloning an adult mammal, producing a lamb named Dolly. Dolly, however, would be put down after a short life marred by premature aging and disease. Well, as I mentioned this morning, the Supreme Court threw out a series of remaining challenges to election processes and election results in several states left over from the recent presidential election cycle. Did they make the decision not to take them up on their merit or because they were no longer relevant? Well, one of the lawsuits was brought by Representative 
uh, Mike Kelly, who challenged President Biden's victory over former President uh, Trump. Kelly had asked the court to consider his lawsuit, which challenged mail-in voting policies in his home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, The Supreme Court also denied a petition seeking review in Republican Party uh, of the uh, election, Pennsylvania versus Degra Farid. Yeah, I didn't get that very well. Well, another case dismissed was brought by lawyer Lynn Wood against Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffsenberger, challenging results and policies in Georgia. The case from Arizona, Ward versus Jackson, was also dismissed. That lawsuit challenged Biden's victory at the polls in that state. An appeal lodged by the president uh, against Wisconsin results uh, in uh, was a denial, uh, denied rather. And the case was Trump versus Biden. Uh, another Wisconsin related appeal, King versus Whitmer was dismissed. So the court has spoken. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to hear from Justin's Whitmail Early, The Common Rule. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the modern world that you and I live in is a machine of a thousand invisible habits that form us into anxious, busy, and Sometimes depressed people, we yearn for the freedom and the peace of the gospel, but remain addicted to our technology, shackled by our screens and exhausted by our routines. But because our habits are the water we swim in, as my next guest uh, puts it, uh, they're almost invisible to us. So what can we do about it? Well, the answer to our contemporary chaos is a practice of, uh, to practice rather, a rule of life that aligns our habits to our beliefs. Now, the common rule offers four daily and four weekly habits that are designed to help us create new routines and transform our frazzled days into lives of love for God and our neighbors. My next guest provides uh, concrete, doable practices such as a daily hour of phoneless presence or a weekly conversation with a friend. Now, these habits are common not only because they're ordinary, but also because they can be practiced in community. They've been lived out by people across all walks of life, business people, professionals, parents, Parents, students who have discovered new hmm, hope and purpose. We're talking about the book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Well, Justin Early is the creator of The Common Rule, a program of habits designed to form us in the love of God and neighbor. He's also a, a um, mergers and acquisitions attorney in uh, Richmond, Virginia. He previously served as a missionary in China. He and his wife, Lauren, have four sons, and we are delighted to have him with us today to talk about his latest book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Thank you so much for talking with us today. You're welcome. I'm so glad to be here. I know we would all agree that we live in a frazzled world in which there are so many distractions, and I love the way you put it, uh, that we find ourselves uh, shackled by our screens, addicted to technology, and that sometimes because the water we swim in is familiar, that we're unaware of some of the habits that we have and how they shape us in ways we don't imagine. Indeed. I think the key realization that led to this book is me starting to realize that the world we live in is not neutral and the habits that we have aren't necessarily neutral. They can be great or they can be awful, but they're never neutral and they're usually invisible. Hence the need to kind of talk specifically about this stuff. Now, this was really born out of personal experience for you in which you found your life sort of spiraling. Um, I'm not sure out of control is the right way to put it, but in ways that you were not content with. Tell us a little bit about how your own collapse led to 
um, incorporating habits that reshaped not only what you do, but how you see the world and how the world shapes us in unknown ways. Sure. And actually, out of control is not a bad way to put it, <laughs> unfortunately. But I used I was a missionary in China for almost five years right after I graduated in college. And I felt the Lord towards the end of that time call me to law and business in the United States. And to, and to me, I believe he's calling me to that as a way of admission. Mm-hmm. So I had a Christian calling as I went into my career as a lawyer. But in retrospect, all, all of this is in retrospect, right? But um, I, I see now that while you know my life was decorated with this Christian content and Christian calling through my law school and early lawyering days, the architecture of my life was just built like everybody else's, built out of the same habits, the routines that everybody else had. And that worked okay for a while, but then it all fell apart. And um, as your listeners might know, um, law school, like many other professions, they they demand a lot of you. Mm -hmm. The normal life of a law school student, especially a top law school student who is trying to make it to the top law firms as I was, um, you know, it's a, it can be an endless stream of new activities, new resume fillers, new calendar alerts, new emails, everything to watch, everything to do. And this isn't all that different than our normal lives. If we're, you know, trying to push in our careers or push in our jobs, this is often what many of our lives look like. And, um, you know, I just, this is the water I swam in until a couple uh, months into my new job as a lawyer, I, I sort of, I collapsed and I did, it did sort of lead to an out of control time. But for me, what happened was that I woke up one night with this sort of unexplainable feel, feeling of panic. And I had never had anxiety attacks or panic attacks or anything like that before. I was actually a pretty low stress person. And so when, when I finally went to the emergency room, cause I was almost up for two nights in a row, not sleeping, um, the doctors just told me that I was experiencing what they call clinical anxiety and that it was very common, which was of course not reassuring to me at all, but also that's yeah. interesting that so many of us, actually so many of us I've learned now have these kinds of collapses and my, mine became very pretty severe. Um, I got to the point where unfortunately I was unable to sleep or calm down unless I was taking medication or, or drinking alcohol. And that's why that's where I uh, had a key question that started to arise. And that was, how did, how did this missionary get converted? I, I, mm-hmm. You know, I came as the missionary law and business, and I ended up um, being converted to the nervous medicating lawyer. And I, and I had to try to figure out how that happened. Hmm. You write that I had no idea how much habits function like little liturgies in our daily life, forming us in the worship of unknown idols until, uh, you write, your habits uh, wrecked you. And many of us, I think, can cr- relate to what you're describing. Perhaps the details are different. Um, but the outcome is the same. Now, you were fortunate enough, you were blessed to have uh, a wife and others who helped to walk you through this and out of this by establishing some uh, some new habits that replaced what you had been doing. Talk a, a little bit about hitting bottom and then finding your way out. Yeah, so I titled this book The Common Rule for a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons is that it began in community. And so what happened was that, thank God, I, my wife and some very close friends, and this is such an important lesson for anybody that I talk to or that is thinking about this stuff, community, you know, the community of the church, the community of believers, is such, it's a lifeline in our faith, 
and I, and they stuck near to me and they loved me enough to say, we have got to start making some changes in your life um, in order to get you back into a healthy place because clearly things were falling apart. And what that looked like was about a year after this collapse, and, and note it was a year, you know, it was a long, dark, difficult time, but about a year after this collapse, um, I sat down with my friends one night and said, I'd like you to keep me accountable to these habits. And there were some habits that my wife and I had developed almost as a last ditch effort. We tried counseling, we tried you know, medication, a lot of stuff. And then we, we, we said, you know, let's put some guardrails on your life and try to get you to live in a way that's um, more reasonable, more calm, some limits. And I did not think that these would matter that much, to be honest. I, I mean, I was willing to do anything, but I had no idea how deeply formative our ordinary routines were. Because what happened is that after a couple months after I started living according to these routines, oh, many of which I write about in the book, mm-hmm. I, I, my life started to completely change. And, and wonderfully, that was something to praise God and thank God for. Because I started to normalize, and there's nothing like normalizing after, after you know, mental illness crashes like this. But then I began to get very interested in why this mattered so much and how, how would I live most of my life thinking that what we say is who we become? And, and suddenly I realized that, it's, that there's a deep combination here, and a lot of it is these little liturgies, I call them, little liturgies of habits that actually lead us into who we are. And I call them liturgies just, just because habits are small, repeated, often unconscious, or at least semi-conscious acts. And the, the key distinction is that because we're made for worship, we can't not worship. So all of, our, all of these little acts lead us into some area of worship. And just like liturgies, the liturgies are repeated routines of worship that mm-hmm. hope to form us, right? Um, I realize this is the same thing as happening in habits. They're little routines of worship that will form us. The only difference is liturgies own up to being worshipful. Habits often obscure what we're worshiping. And so that, that's when I started to think and write and blog about how significant habits were to our spiritual lives. Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking about the book, The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. Justin uh, Whitmill Early is my guest. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with the author of The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. It is such a practical book. I think any one of us could pick it up and follow these simple steps that would help us to not only rearrange um, ourselves with uh, the habits that we are incorporating, but also to recognize uh, the impact that other habits have on us as well. Justin Whitmull Early is my guest and he is the author of the book. And by the way, it's published by InterVarsity press. Well, let's talk about the common rule. It's made up of eight habits for daily and four habits for um, weekly practice. Describe it for us. Yeah, sure. The habits of the common rule are divided up into some spectrums. So if you go on the website at thecommonrule.org or open up the book, you'll see there's a habit diagram. And on the inner circle, there's four daily habits. On the outer circle, there's four weekly habits. And all of these habits are trying to reclaim small spaces of our lives and lean them into the worship of God and neighbor. So maybe a good example would be the daily habit of Scripture before phone. This habit is trying to 
lean us into the worship of God by starting our day off in, in God's love letter to us, as opposed to what now I and so many other people often do is starting our day off in email or social media or checking our calendars. Because again, what we just talked about a minute ago, these little habits aren't neutral and often starting our day off in, let's say work emails, our head is just asking our phone, what do I need to do today? You know, who, who needs what today? But in those early hours of the morning, those formative moments, when we first open our eyes and roll, roll over in bed and grab the phone, our heart through habit is asking our phone a really different question. And that is, you know, who do I need to become today? Who do I need to be in order to be loved? And I, that, I think, is a great example of how a small habit that otherwise seems neutral actually leads our heart out of belief of the gospel, the gospel being we are loved despite our brokenness by Jesus. No matter what we do, his love for us is stronger. We're led into a different place where we think, I need to earn my love today by responding quickly to these emails or getting all this done, or maybe it's social media. I need to earn my love by um, you know, posting the right picture or responding in the right way. And so we're trying to grab hold of that formative moment through a small habit of, of just saying scripture before phone. Mm. Let's order our loves rightly. Let's be sent out into the world in the love of God. And then we can engage email and social media and all the things we need to do. Yeah, I love that you place the day, those those formative moments, as you put it, uh, in the context of the love of God, in the context of your relationship with God. And that's a great way to start a morning. Another of those daily habits is kneeling prayer at morning, midday, and, and bedtime. Not just prayer, but kneeling prayer. Um, why add the kneeling in, in this formid, uh, formative habit that you engage in every day? Yeah. You know, the kneeling, like anything else in the common rule, there's nothing magic about any of this. Mm-hmm. We're just trying to ask the question, how do we get our full self how do we get the attention of our full self, mind, body, soul? And the kneeling prayer is a way to wake up your mind and heart to the moment of prayer. I often find that it is, it is often um, through the body that we get the attention of the soul. So when I suggest in the common rule to mark your days at the time of kneeling prayer, morning, midday, and evening, I sort of mean right when you wake up one way to grab the attention of the, the tired body and enter the day it prayerfully, as opposed to the, the, the groan of, Oh, I didn't get enough sleep or, Oh my gosh, there's so much to, to do today. Or, Oh no, I'm late. You know, to um, silence those moments just by kneeling and saying, Lord, this day is yours. What would you have for me? Or let's say midday at work when this is typical of me, I'm starting to realize all the things I'd hope to get done today are actually not going to get done. And, I, and I'm looking down the afternoon and realizing, Oh no, I've done it again. I'm just not enough again. And that's the moment where I say, no, let's let's kneel again, get the attention of the body and the mind and say the rest of this day is also the Lord's. How can I frame it in love for him and a neighbor? And similarly in the evening. So the kneeling is, you know, many people aren't able to kneel because of age or condition or, or maybe in their office, they don't have a private place. Sometimes I just turn my palms up sort of quietly on my lap to mark the moment. But I like the idea of getting your body involved because that's often the way we really get our heart's attention. Yeah, yeah. Now, among those four habits, you all uh, mentioned earlier one hour with the phone off. But uh, another, the fourth is one meal with others. This is in the context, as you mentioned earlier, of community. And that's an important part of um, this common rule in which we incorporate as a habit 
um, fellowshipping in with others. Why is that important? Yeah. Well, you know, four of these habits of the common rule are sort of lean towards the love of God. And four of them, and I think this is really important, are, are trying to get us out of ourselves and into the real love of neighbor. And I think that begins in creating our own rich community with the people we're with in our family or in the body of Christ. And I realized early on in my job as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer that it is really, really easy and, in fact, probably the default mode to just run through your day eating things on the go. And then once in a while, we'll sit down and cook a slow-cooked artisanal meal and Instagram pictures about it or, you know, post something about it. But it's, we, it's a, we have a strange, you know, hot-cold relationship with food where most of it is just fuel, as if we were machines. Um, and then sometimes it's fashion, as if we are going you know, to show it off. But neither of these, I think, gets at what it means to be a, a creature that needs to eat. And I think realizing that means that the Lord created us to be dependent on food. And that says so much about who we are. Um, and I think one of the things it says is that we come to the table for the sustenance of our life. And part of that is we come to the table for community. We come to the table because we don't just need food. We need the pleasures and the company of community. We're meant to gather together around the table. And this was happening because, you know, I, I would start working through every meal and around this time that I told you about when my wife and my friends helped me put some limiting habits on our life. One of those was just to eat one meal a day with others. And, and what we began to do was just say, you know, around 630, it didn't matter how crazy work was. Um, we're we're going to put it on pause. I could always come back to it after a kid's bedtime if I needed to. And we're just going to have a family meal together. And the, to be honest, Georgine, I, I just, um, you know, it's 6.30 here on the East Coast. And I know it's earlier there in the yeah. afternoon. But I just, we, I got home early today to have my family dinner with my wife and kids and then told them I needed to go do a, a radio interview. And I just think, it's a, you know, it's a good example. Of, that's not a habit. It just, we eat together. And that forms a community in our household. Yeah. Yeah. Well, will you thank them for, for us, for giving you the freedom to I join will. us I this will. evening? Please do. I will. Now, our time is, is almost up, but I don't want to neglect the weekly habits that are also part of the common rule. Can you um, briefly take us through those? And I apologize for that because they're important enough. They merit more time. We just don't have it. Well, and, and that's fair. And so let me use this moment to interject. Anybody that looks at all the habits initially, it can, it can seem a little bit overwhelming because it's hard to just explain eight new habits for your life in, you know, 15 minutes or less. But I would, I would encourage everybody to sort of flip the switch and realize that these habits are not overwhelming. What's overwhelming is to do nothing. Mm-hmm. Most of us are living lives of habit that is completely overwhelming, and we feel it. And yet, strangely, we do, we do nothing about it. So I, I, I just want to say... I want to invite people into the freedom and into the peace that comes with putting some limiting structures around your life. And it's really important that we don't get freedom by throwing off all our limitations. We get freedom by picking the right limitations. Mm. And so, you know, we don't have time to explain all the habits in the book, but I'll give you two of them that from the weekly side that are really important for me. I think one of them is a weekly conversation with a friend. And the second one is the, the, the weekly habit of Sabbath. And so on, on friendship, it, this is another habit that's just trying to lean us away from the default American mode of emerging into a busy and yet lonely life and say that what is more important to prioritize, 
than one hour a week. Think about it. You have a lot of hours in the week. One hour a week where you sit down and have real vulnerable conversation with a friend. Um, you know, I think friendships are a building block of community. We long for community in our churches and our neighborhoods. And the, the building blocks of community is friendships with other people. And the building block of friendships, I would argue, is shared conversation where we're actually sitting and disclosing who we are to each other. And this is really important because one way to phrase the gospel is that God sees us fully and loves us anyway. Hmm. And I think a friend is somebody who knows you well enough because you've disclosed your life in conversation with each other. And yet they look at you and they see all your mess and how crazy you are. And they say, I'm sticking around anyway. And I think we embody the gospel to each other when we form vulnerable friendships like that. So this is just a way to make a routine of friendship. Well, I accept your invitation to take take this common rule on, um, because what you're describing is something I think my life would benefit from because of the hectic, hectic, busy nature of it. Once again, the title of the book is The Common Rule, Habits of Purpose for an Age of Distraction. It's worth reading. The website's helpful, too, but I would encourage you to get the book. Uh, Justin Early, thank you so much for taking the time, particularly away from your family, uh, to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. You're so welcome, Georgine. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.